Luke chapter 20. You're somewhat tempted to say, that's all, we can go home now after a song like that. But uh, the morning continues. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. We looked at this passage last week and focused mainly on the first half of what Jesus said, uh, render unto Caesar, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. So we will uh, consider all of the passage together this morning and focus mostly on what, what Jesus says in the second half, give to God what is his. Before we read God's word, And consider it together, let us bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open minds, that you would soften hearts, that you would awaken souls through your word and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Luke 20, God's holy word given to us for our good. Let us attend to its reading. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer. They became silent. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God endures forever. Amen. One of the recurring events that we continue to see in our divided culture is these explosions of activism and protests, particularly on our our most prestigious colleges and and universities. These young people will see something that they believe is not right that they believe is unjust or unrighteous, and they will speak out against these things with a a remarkable confidence and often an anger and an asserted self-righteousness. We've seen rioting and and mobs break out regularly over the past number of years. Came across a a letter written by a professor uh, on one of these campuses, a professor uh, at Villanova, And he wrote an open letter to these campus activists, a letter of reminder, admonition, of warning. And what he wrote was quite insightful. He said, you need to be careful because when you see unrighteousness or injustice in the world, and and in a sense you then rebel against the world, if there's nothing that brings you beyond the horizon of this world, the only place you have then to turn is back inwards upon yourself. And so he said the rebellion of of today's postmodern and secular world is really an embrace of the self. And he reminded them that 
To turn to the self is really to turn to and to embrace the worst that this world has to offer. The self, the worst this world has to offer because that is where the deepest evil lies within the self, not in institutions or organizations or systems, but in the sinful self laid bare before God. And thus, unless you have something that brings you beyond the horizon of this world, uh, you will struggle to find an answer that provides any help. The image of God is one of those things that reminds us that there is more uh, than this world that we see that we have been endowed with this sense of immortality, that we have been made for something beyond this world. This passage is a a remarkable, a fascinating insight into the image of God through the, the words and the teaching of Jesus Christ. But Jesus also shows us the way that the image of God is fulfilled in him, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, and how those benefits are given to us It's his followers in the gospel and by the power of the Spirit. So here's our life-transforming reality this morning. As God's image bearers, it is the duty of all human beings to give ourselves in service to God. But this only happens for those who are ultimately remade in the image of Christ, the one who has fulfilled the call of the image of of God. As God's image bearers, it is the duty of all human beings to give ourselves in service to God. But this can only happen for those who are remade in the image of Christ, the one who has fulfilled the call of the image of God for us. So we consider three things the image of Caesar, the image of God, and the image of Christ. By way of review, we'll, we'll quickly go over some of the things that we spoke of uh, last week. In the first part of Jesus' response, this whole occasion is brought about because the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders in Jerusalem are angry, particularly because Jesus told that parable of the vineyard back at the beginning of chapter 20. This was an indictment against their leadership, and it was a declaration that they were going to miss the Messiah. He was going to pass right by, and they would not recognize him as such. The people respond and they say, this cannot be. Surely the leadership of Israel, those who lead us, would be able to recognize the Messiah. This is the the, the center of our hope. And Jesus points them to Psalm 118. He says the Old Testament reveals that this much will happen because it says the stone the builders rejected, he will become the cornerstone. This is really the, the grand message of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. That he will bring the kingdom of God to the fullness of its splendor and majesty, but he will do so through rejection and suffering. Splendor and majesty through rejection and suffering. And of course, that's a perfect way to describe the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Foolishness to Greeks, a stumbling block to Jews. Uh, but yet the power of God to the ones who are being saved. But yet, as we come upon this passage, it's still in the minds of the leadership of Israel that surely they'll be able to expose Jesus with some kind of piercing or insightful question, one that will trap him and not give him any opportunity to give a good answer. And so that is what they have done here in this passage They send spies, and we said that 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 sort of highlights the the heightening of the tension 
that this battle is beginning to wage, that they're starting to take more drastic means to expose Jesus. They fulfill in this way Psalm 37, where we read, the wicked spies on the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Even here, Jesus is, in a sense, waging battle with the forces of evil, those who are cloaked even as the leaders of Israel. This question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, is a yes or no question, and either option, they believe, is going to be detrimental for the cause of Jesus. These spies and the leaders of Jerusalem who have employed them, that's what they think. If Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then what they think is that Jesus will appear as some sort of weak anti-nationalist. He's not really worth your following him if he himself is falling under the authority of Caesar. David slew Goliath. Surely the one who comes as the the, the better David, the son of David, will be able to slay Caesar. If Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then all of a sudden he becomes a, a zealous insurrectionist. We talked last week that there was one thing that Rome would not put up with, and it was insurrection, rioting. And revolution. Thereby, uh, they would use the leadership of Rome to squash Jesus. That shows their duplicity. That shows their hypocrisy. But of course, by Jesus' answer and his response, uh, he leaves them completely dumbfounded. And he exposes for us and teaches for us the wonder and the majesty of the kingdom of God and how it grows and advances even in the midst of this world and in the midst and under the reign of someone like uh, Caesar. At every turn, the righteousness of Jesus is exposing the wickedness of his enemies. So Jesus answers in the affirmative, but shows us something with much more depth than they could have ever anticipated. The context for Jesus' answer comes from his pointing out that it's Caesar's image on the coin. Important to keep that in mind, that he uses the language for image. Whose image is on this coin? Jesus is not answering just sort of in a dismissive way. He's not saying give to Caesar what is Caesar's because money and all things that belong to this material world are sinful and useless. So give it to Caesar. It's useless. It's sinful. No, he's making a very important point. He's saying the presence of the kingdom of God on this earth, which it is present, the presence of the kingdom of God on this earth does not disqualify the legitimacy of earthly kings and earthly Kingdoms. Here we have something of the apostles Peter and Paul and their teaching that we read elsewhere in the New Testament. Simply respect, submit, be subject to the governing authorities that are placed over you. For all things happen under the sovereignty of God, and thus these rule according to God's appointment. So we talked about this is one of the principal means that God uses to maintain order in his world. This is how God maintains order in a sinful and fallen world. And, and one word that really captures what God does in human government and in, in what we call common grace is he preserves. He is preserving this world from tumbling into total destruction, preserving this world through common grace. Or he's not consummating this world through common grace. He is preserving this world through common grace. But these are good means that God has given to us in order that his world might be preserved. So last week we talked about how Christians are to be involved in this work of preservation, even of betterment of this world. There are certain parts, uh, groups of Christianity that say you've got to withdraw completely. Don't be involved in any of those means. 
but we see that these things are good. And it is good and right for Christians to take up the office of a magistrate, to be a police officer, to be a judge, or many other things. We are to improve, cause betterment of the world through serving and loving our neighbor and doing all to the glory of God, even as we are members of the city of God. We're ultimately oriented towards eternal life and the new heavens and new earth. Citizens of the city of man, oriented towards the love of the self, the love of this world, And yet, even still, we can join together with them in all these things of what we call common grace. We unpacked all of these things. Jesus' point is not that he's bringing about the image of Caesar in a pejorative way. Yet he affirms it. He affirms it. Even as we think about that coin that Jesus probably looked at. That coin that said, Tiberius Caesar, there are great high priests, right? This coin was filled with blasphemy, son of the divine Augustus. R.C. Sproul says, you might have put on that coin, son of the deceased Augustus, right? So even as this coin is, is filled with blasphemy, Jesus affirms the rule of Caesar. It's important for us to keep all of that in mind. And of course, this does not mean that all governments are good, that all civil magistrates are good ministers of justice. It does not mean that every law must be obeyed. As the people of God, we are to obey God. So if there ever is a human law that would uh, cause us to disobey God by obeying it, we do not, we are not bound to obey that law. If by obeying God, we would then disobey a human law, we still obey God. God is Lord and King of all. But we need wisdom uh, to navigate those things. We spoke of that last week. So that's the image of Caesar Secondly, the image of God. If you could uh, give one word to describe the nature of the, the, the rule of these common grace kingdoms, it's the word pen ultimate. Pen ultimate. Do you know what that means? Ultimate, of course, meaning last or final. Pen ultimate is just before that. Just before that. The second to last thing. And that is all that common grace can do. It can bring about pen ultimate things. Human government is good. But it is pen ultimate. Culture, society, human flourishing, raising people out of poverty, these are all wonderful blessings of common grace that we can work together to achieve, but they are pen ultimate goods. Jesus rem- reminds us of that and also brings us beyond it. He says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Most people tend to focus on the first half of this passage. Understandable, because we always want to know how does Christ relate to culture? How does the church relate to the state? How do we live in this world? But really, the main thrust of what we have in this passage is noticed in that second half of what Jesus says. Give to God what is God's. Giving to Caesar under God's authority. We're called to do it when it is lawful, but there is a greater call that Jesus reminds us here. Jesus reasons this way. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's image is on the coin. Thus, it belongs to Caesar. So he says, if someone or something bears the image of another, if it is stamped with the image of another, it belongs to the one whose image it is. The coin belongs to Caesar. But the question is, what belongs to God? And the answer comes, of course, when we consider that it is God's image that we bear. It's God's image that we bear. We are stamped with his image. And it is here that we move from the penultimate to the ultimate. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
We are the the crown of God's creation. We have been especially fitted to be those who can bring glory to God through our lives and through the work of our hands. This is a truth that we don't often allow to sink into our minds so that it becomes, it, it, it roots itself in our hearts and transforms our lives. Think of the example of the denarius. Jesus was able to say that it belonged to Caesar, that it was truly his property. There are certainly many powerful kings, tyrants, who have convinced themselves that they are divine. They are gods, partially because of the the size and scope of their kingdom and how many things could have been labeled their property. But the buck did not stop with them. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to God, even if he gives and appoints those who would rule under his authority. It all belongs to the Lord. Why? Psalm 24 explains why the earth is the Lord's. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. This verse, it it makes very clear that everything belongs to God because he has created everything. We stay within the context of creation. Where does Genesis lead us in showing us the pinnacle, the apex of God's creation? It's the creation of human beings. We the apex, the pinnacle of God's creation. So this gives new meaning to passages in the scripture where it says, all your works shall give thanks to you and shall praise you. Right? The Psalter even ends in Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And often we read the Psalms somewhere else, like Psalm 148, where it says, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, all of these things bring glory to God. But yet, the truth behind that is then how much more, as those stamped with the image of God, are we to bring glory to God? This is quite the call that the Lord places upon uh, his created beings. And that's ultimately what Jesus is saying. If the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, because he has founded it upon the seas, because he has established it upon the waters, then as the crown of that creation, we belong to God and we are to serve him with our lives. This is precisely why Psalm 24 goes from that, God has created all things, to this notion of someone serving God in purity and wholeness and and ethical uh, obedience. Psalm 24, verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who who is the one who will bring glory to God by worshiping him? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Notice how the psalm there highlights both the material and the immaterial as that which must serve God. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who does not lift up his soul to an idol and the one who does not speak deceitfully, who does not use his tongue uh, to dishonor God. See, God has created us body and soul, material and immaterial, in such a way that we belong to him and we are to serve him with all that we are. This is an an enormous call for righteous living. You think of the rich young ruler and uh, how he approached Jesus with this confidence of outward obedience. I've not lied, I've not cheated, I've not, I'm not, I don't steal, I've not committed adultery. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the, the conversation eventually leads to Jesus says, here's what's required of you, absolute, total, perpetual, perpetual obedience. 
We get caught up when Jesus says, sell all that you have and give to the poor. But we forget what Jesus says right after that. Then come, follow me. Because in the context of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the one walking the road of righteousness. And everyone's going to fall off. Everyone's going to abandon him by the end. Only he will be standing. So he says, give away all that you have. All that you love, all that you've earned. Give it all away. Renounce it all. But then come, follow me. Come, follow me. That is Righteousness. He, calls away, he goes away sad and burdened because the, the demands of righteousness are too lofty. The demands go even further back than that and go back to uh, the, the first one who bore the image of God, Adam. In the Garden of Eden, he was called to do three things, basically rule, create, and rest. And in those three things, he's reflecting the character and the righteousness of God. God called him to rule. God was the one who had formed the earth and had filled it. He had given order to it, and so his call upon Adam was to rule and to preserve that order. Of course, we see, we see the devil come into the Garden of Eden, and he flips order on its head. Adam did not rule the way that God had called him to. The Lord called Adam to create. Well, what did he call him to create? Well, in that state of probation, if Adam would have preserved this world and ruled the order that God had called him to do, then he would have introduced to the human race eternal blessedness and enjoyment with God. He would have brought us into that eternal fellowship. But he did not. He failed. The Lord called Adam to rest by doing all that God had called him to do in righteousness and in holiness and just as God did when he created and saw that it was good, he rested. Adam was called to rule and to create and to rest. Our catechism reminds us that he failed as a public person. A lot of people fail as public people nowadays, and there, there are effects of their actions that go far beyond even what they could have seen or what they could have known. But none as far-reaching as Adam's. Because of Adam's failure, not ruling, not creating, not attaining rest, the commands, the demands of the image of God forever lost to us. Forever lost to us by our sin. See, we still bear God's image but God's image is a painful reminder of our inability to do that which we were created to do. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do in this passage. Give yourself to God, body and soul. But we can't. Precisely that is the point. And that, of course, brings us to the image of Christ. The image of Christ. Here's the bottom line. We are able to fulfill the divine command as God's image bearers by being what the scriptures describe as in Christ. The image of Christ, it's very simple. The image of Christ is the image of God fulfilled for us by Jesus. The image of Christ is the image of God fulfilled for us by Jesus and given to us in the gospel by faith. The kingdom of God grows and advances as more and more people share in these blessings of the image of Christ. And that is why Jesus says what he does in, in, in this passage. The growth and advancement of his kingdom is not impeded by the existence of kings. It doesn't matter that Caesar is on the throne because the kingdom of God grows as the image of God is renewed in God's work of salvation of sinners. So Jesus still, in this passage, is bringing us to the hope of the gospel. He's showing us the demands of the image. But then even by his life, in, in what he does, and in being who he is in this passage, as the man standing in Jerusalem, ready to go and die, he brings us to the hope of the gospel. For he is the one who fulfilled this righteous calling for us as the second 
Adam. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself, Peter is saying, the righteous one, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. And so Jesus shows us by how, how he as the second Adam fulfills this call to rule and to create and to rest. He rules as he ascends and takes his seat at the Father's right hand and rules over all things as the risen and exalted one, the one magnified, the one given a name above every name. He is the one who creates as he creates a new humanity in his representation. God looks at the world and he sees two people. He sees Adam and he sees Christ. Under whose representation do you fall? He creates a new humanity by his righteousness. And he takes rest as he is seated at his father's right hand. As he says, it is finished. Because he has done everything that he has needed to do in order to save. As Hebrews says, to save to the uttermost. So the New Testament writers keep coming to this truth that those who are in Christ, those who have faith in him in the gospel, are given this fulfilled image, the image of Christ. In fact, Paul says this was God's purpose from the beginning. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Whenever we read in the New Testament, as we did this morning for our reading of the law, put on the new self. What Paul says is saying basically, put on the new man. He's saying be clothed with the image of Christ. And Christ doesn't just wipe the slate clean. This is key to understand. He doesn't wipe the slate clean and bring you back to the Garden of Eden and say, okay, now now achieve it again. Do what Adam was not able to do. No, he gives to us that which Adam failed to do and that which he fulfilled. He does not uh, bring us back into a state of probation. He brings us to that fulfillment, that completed righteousness. And so, as we are found to be in Christ, we do three things. We rule, we create, we rest. Ephesians chapter 1 says, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. If you are found in him, if you are, if you are united to Christ, you are ruling and reigning now in him. We create as we are used as the instruments of God so that his kingdom might continue to grow and advance in this world. Everyone in the church has a role to play. Not everyone has the same calling. Not everyone has the same responsibility. But we are called to be the people of God in the midst of this world, showing forth the redemption that God has brought about in us and living according to that in gratitude. We're to be separate. We're called to be separate from this world. We're called to rest We are called to rest because Christ has finished it for us. That's why the Christian life is a life of praise. It's a life of gratitude. Not a life of striving to achieve, but of resting in his finished works. We have received all things. And yet we also are called in scripture to have that reality that we have been given. To have that be manifested more and more. And that's what happens by the power of the spirit. By the grace of God. And this highlights the critical difference in the, in the Christian life between justification and sanctification. Two things that are absolutely different but bound together. Justification, you are seated with Christ, you are given all forgiveness, you are given all righteousness, eternal life. It's all yours by faith, cannot be reversed. Sanctification, more and more, God brings about these realities within you. That as you are united to Christ, that this image of Christ is manifested more 
and more. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the image of the Lord. That's the image of Christ. That's the image of God fulfilled for us. As we read this morning, Ephesians 4, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new man, the second Adam, who is created after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then in Christ bearing his image, we are called back to all of these things and to live them out in, in gratitude. We're to do two things, to realize and to consider. To realize all that Christ has done for us and then to consider what God has made you to be. So this is why we read in the New Testament that we are to give our bodies to the Lord. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Our bodies are to be used to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We spoke last week about how we can't have this mentality that our our bodies, because they're material, are therefore sinful and evil. No, we need to use them as being redeemed in Christ to glorify him. We are to give our souls to God and all of their faculties. We talk about the faculties of the soul. We talk about our mind, our heart, and our will. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you want to know how Christian transformation happens, it happens in the unity of mind, heart, and will. As we grow, as Peter says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you learn more and more about God's word, about his truth, as you are shaped by that, as the Holy Spirit uses his truth to get into your mind, it sinks into your heart and shapes your love and your affection. When your love and your affection is oriented toward God and his glory, then your will will follow your affections. The mind, the heart, and the will. What do you know? What do you love? What do you choose? We are to serve God with our time. God's the Lord and the giver of life. It all belongs to him, the time he gives to us. He commands us to make the best use of it. Ephesians chapter 5, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We are to serve God with our possessions and our influence. How sad, how sad is it when those renewed, forgiven, given life in Jesus Christ, use their possessions and their influence to spend it on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We are to serve God with our giftedness. There's many things that we see in scripture where uh, we are evaluated and called to be faithful stewards of our giftedness and our abilities. You think of all those parables where the, the master entrusts something, sometimes at different levels, to his servants. He comes back and he wants to know what they have done with what he entrusted to them. Uh, wonderfully reminded of that here in the last couple of weeks just to bring this uh, full circle to how we began uh, talking about those who uh, on America's campuses so often rebel against the world, turn inward on the self, have nothing to bring them beyond the horizon of this world. Uh, if you get the current edition of the banner, you'll see one of the daughters of our congregation wrote and penned a wonderful essay which points us to going beyond the horizon of this world, how it happens in the gospel, and how all things are summed up in Christ. And listen to how, uh, this is just a wonderful reminder of her using her giftedness to bring glory to God and serving him. 
She writes this, events happen, days go by with no discernible end. The tides swell and take governments down with them. A century later, it happens again. Nothing new happens under the sun. After all of our eating and drinking, the merriment loses its shine. The volume keeps rising, but all the sound isn't a symphony. It's just noise. Bad things happen to innocent people, and although we can distract ourselves with good books to read and stories to entertain us, they'll never set things right. They can offer us great beauty and maybe some comfort, but at best they only distract us from an ugly and broken world. Christianity still matters because it and only it provides the framework for meaning in both the lives of individuals and the arc of the world. At the cross of Jesus Christ, she says, every thread is tangled together. The horrors of war and the weeping of mothers rested on the shoulders of God. The man responsible for none of these threads hung bound by them as the world below scorned him. Keeping with the tradition of Genesis, God atoned for the cosmic debt of sin above while among the sinners themselves. The curtains ripped, the threads broke loose, and the creation murdered its creator. Three days later, the threads came together, but this time they weren't a distorted mass. Christ rose. Every string, both past and present, found a place in the master tapestry. The creation that ran from God found life in him. This is a story only Christianity can tell. In that excerpt, she says, the creation murdered its creator. Colossians 3.10 calls us to be renewed after the image of the one who created it. Colossians 3.10, be renewed in the image after the one who created it. And that is the wonder of the gospel. The same one who created us, who created us in his image, is the same one who came to earth in order to recover and consummate that image, and calls us to live in thankfulness and in gratitude to him. If that does not make you ready to serve the Lord with all that you have, in praise to him, in thankfulness to him, then you have not adequately grasped what it is that Christ has done for you. So think on these truths. Pray on these truths. By God's spirit, he will grant you the power and the grace and the love necessary to live for Christ as you are renewed in his image more and more each day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise and adoration. Uh, We adore you as the only God. And we thank you so much for Christ and for all he he does for us. He has done and continues to do, interceding for us, comforting us, sending forth through uh, his spirit our blessings in this life, so much that we receive from him. You will provide all that we need, and we give you thanks. May you keep us faithful unto the last day with a heavenly mindedness, always remembering our king, our king who will come again, who will come again and will claim us as his own. May we be found ready and waiting that day. In Christ's name, amen.